And welcome to episode 005 of Fatal to Prejudice. Today, I got my buddy Aaron here. Uh, we met uh, about a year ago or so, uh, maybe a little over a year ago, in the bourbon world. So we've hung out uh, a couple of times, told some stories uh, over a couple of pours of some uh, fancy bottles, and uh, found his stories pretty interesting, so I got him here today to tell uh, the rest of the world his stories. Welcome. Thank, yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. So we were talking earlier, um, and you wanted to you wanted to make the growing up story a little bit of a surprise. So, where where did you grow up? It's not that exciting, but it's interesting to me anyway. I grew up in a very small town, Western Pennsylvania, a very rural. Uh, if you Google Earth, my home, it's just a canopy of green. <laughs> it's hard to identify individual houses. We used to have one of those like Ricola horns that you oh, blow, yeah. and I would blow it when I wanted my neighbors to ride their bikes over to play. <laughs> <laughs> it's that that remote, but it was a good childhood. You know, we were way out in our own little world, playing in the woods all day. It just not a care in the world. Um, so that was Western PA, Indiana County. We had to drive about 25 minutes to the local grocery store to get groceries. That's a hike. Yeah. And the town had a post office, two stop signs, and about six bars. Old coal mining towns in western PA. Wow. Yeah. Any street lights? No. No street Not lights. a single street light. Yeah. But... It was good. You know, the kids grew up super close. There were three elementary schools, and one was suburban. One, we kid, we considered the city kids. I guess now that I live in Columbus, I realize how small that town was that I called <laughs> a city. But we were the country kids. We were the bumpkins. Mm -hmm. And those three elementaries fed into one middle school and high school system. So that was up till ninth grade where I went to school, and then in ninth grade, we went from eight periods in high school to they called it block scheduling, and it was this new trend in education, and there were 80-minute blocks, and you only had four classes a day. Interesting. I've and, never heard of this. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting to us, too, because they kind of sprang it on us at the end of my freshman year. And I didn't think that our teachers were ready for it. So I came to my parents, and they worked hard and provided anything we thought we needed, but it wasn't an extravagant childhood by any means. <laughs> and I said, I want to go to a private school to finish my education because mm -hmm. I don't think these teachers are ready for it, and I don't think it's going to be good for us. And they said, well, we have this much money for college set aside for you. If you want to spend that on high school, that's up to you. And so I did. I spent my college money on a private school, a wow. private all-boys all boys boarding school, a Kiski Prep in Salzburg, Pennsylvania. And I was a little bit of a fish out of water there. <laughs> There's a lot of money at that school. <laughs> and uh, I was on a academic and sports scholarship to make it work 
but it really opened my eyes to the world. I was coming from this small rural town. A country bumpkin. Country bumpkin, yeah. White picket fence, fancy neighborhood. Yeah, princes. I mean, wow. European kids and kids from Japan that were getting picked up in the airport on the school shuttle bus. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that that was pretty interesting experience for a kid in you know tenth grade. Uh, yeah, that's quite the uh, quite the change, I imagine. I mean, were you? Imagine you were missing your friends that you're riding bikes around the neighborhood with. Did you get to see them? Did you make new friends? Yeah, I did make new friends. So there was a, they called us the River Rats because Kiski Prep was on the Kiski Minutus River. Mm -hmm. And anybody that was considered a day student that wasn't boarding there, that was a local kid, they called you a River Rat. So I had a core group of River Rats. And we were all very athletic, you know, playing sports. And some of us were academic, some weren't. But uh, we kind of banded together almost out of necessity because yeah. we didn't have a lot. Of, we didn't have a lot. Right. Most of those other kids did. So, yeah, so I made those friends. I kept some, some of my closest friends back home, but I definitely drifted from my public school friends. Yeah. What, what sport did you play? So I was a football, basketball, baseball. That's really all we could do. <laughs> <laughs> you did all of it. Well, we didn't have soccer. Oh, uh, okay. We didn't have hockey, you know, and baseball was my favorite. Okay. Yeah. Did you get did you go further in then, or did you just play it in high school just to get the scholarship, and you enjoyed it, and that's about it? Yeah, I wanted to play in college badly. Okay. And in one football season... I blew out my right knee, Ooh. and then in the next basketball season, I blew out my left knee. Wow. So I missed two out of three seasons of baseball at Kiskey with knee injuries wow. and uh, didn't get recruited, anything. I wasn't playing. So I walked on at Denison. I went to Denison University. Okay. I walked on and played one season, and decided it wasn't going to go very far after yeah. that so <laughs> peeled back so so you went to denison that's well, that's right down the street from us right yeah, yeah granville ohio yeah so uh, what would you go to denison for i went with a german major german language major only because at kiski i was a german student and formed a really close bond to one of the most influential people in my life still, Dr. Lane. And he was my psychology teacher at, in high school mm -hmm. and my German language teacher in high school. And German wasn't a very popular language, as you can imagine, in right. Western PA. <laughs> so there were only three kids in my sophomore class, and by the time I was a senior, I was the only one. So it was one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Lane. Wow. And he pushed me, you know, he saw potential that I didn't see and he mm -hmm. really pushed me. He was also my psychology teacher, as I said, so I was a psych German double major in college. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <Yeah. laughs> what were your what were your plans with those degrees? I didn't have one. No? No. I just, just like I enjoy it. I'm yeah. gonna go to college to do it. And I was a theater minor, you know. It's wow. And I dropped that 
because I was so lily white, they wanted me to smoke a cigarette in one of my auditions, and I refused. Wow. And they said, if you're not going to commit, then you can't be part of the play. And so I dropped my theater minor because I wouldn't smoke a cigarette, and I became <laughs> a psychology minor, or a, a philosophy minor. So German psych double with a philosophy minor. Interesting. Yeah, totally random. <laughs> totally random. <laughs> they couldn't give you like a placebo cigarette or something? I'm sure they could have, but I was probably so indignant that I didn't even listen. Wow, that's so, I don't know, that's so weird to me to be forced to smoke a cigarette for yeah. an audition. Yeah. Like, your kid have some cancer or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It was weird, yeah. Yeah, so um, what else did you do in college? So I was in a fraternity, a Delta Chi fraternity. Ooh, more grief people coming through. Yeah, they had, I wasn't going to join a fraternity. Mm -hmm. And then my sophomore year, they had been, they lost their charter in whatever year before I got there. I think in the late 80s, early 90s. And so then they were, going to reestablish themselves at Denison and they were recruiting people to reestablish and recharter the fraternity at Denison. And so I interviewed with some people that came from Iowa City where their headquarters is and you know and thought they had good things to say and thought I was going to change Greek life <laughs> forever, you know. So I signed up and met some really great guys through that. And uh, met my wife through that. She was in a sorority, and we threw a mixer and got to meet her. So that wow. worked out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, baseball for a bit, fraternity life. And that was that was it. Denison was a bubble, you know. You didn't yeah. You didn't do a whole lot except get your work done, play some IM sports. Right, Denison, from my understanding, is a pretty small school, so there's yeah. not, and over in like Newark area, it's not a whole lot to do, so you don't, yeah, that's <laughs> you true. don't really get to do a whole lot during school. That's true. You don't really get to enjoy the college years. It was good for me, though, because I came, yeah. my, my graduating class in high school was 50 boys, so wow. coming from that to maybe a state university mm -hmm. might have been a little too much. I think, and I knew yeah. that. I don't know if it was subconscious or not, but I think I knew that. So I, I knew I needed a pretty controlled environment, and Denison seemed to offer that. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's good you got on that path over to over to Denison. Yeah, and we still love the town. We we love Granville. We love Denison, and we had really good good times there. Made some great friends, great professors. Yeah. Um, did you, did you meet any other like professors that you held like near and dear sort of like yeah. the one in, uh, one in high school? Yeah, for sure. And interestingly enough, she was my German professor, okay. uh, Gabrielle Dillman. Yeah. She was a native German and I took, I, one of the reasons I was a German major is I had such focused study in, in high school. I was able to place into a pretty high level in mm -hmm. college so it wouldn't have taken a whole lot of credits to get that major 
so it was almost a no-brainer to double because I wouldn't have to add a whole lot of classes to do that based on where I placed. So I got into her classes and some of the upper-level German classes pretty quickly, and she ended up being a one-on-one advisor for my senior research project and just hit it off. I mean, she's true German, very blunt. Yeah. Told you what it was. You know, she wasn't interested in your stories or your excuses. She wanted to know, is it going to be done? And is it going to be done well? (laughs) And she didn't care for excuses, and I I appreciated that. So we got on really well. That's awesome. Um, So you're very very focused in, like, German culture and speaking the language. And you said earlier your heritage is German. What can you tell me about, like, your family history being German? Yeah, what's actually interesting because we don't have a lot of German. On my mom's side, we have a little... Mm-hmm. Um, but my father's side is primarily Italian. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so w- one of the reasons I chose to be a German major was Dr. Lane mm-hmm. in high school, and the reason I wanted to take German in high school is because my sister, who's four years older, also took German, and she was always trying to stand out from the crowd. Everything she did, she was just a unique person. And I looked up to her so much. So she took German. And I said, well, that's that's what I need to do, too. I need to be just like her. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the high school decision. But uh, my mom is a Smith, so just all over the U.K. And my father was a, it was a Bucho, and then it con- converted to Bucco when they came to the United States. But my grandfather was a first-generation a- Italian-American he came in first grade not speaking any English, and that was my dad's father. Wow. Yeah. Straight, 100% yeah. Italian. I remember my nana, so it would have been my great-grandmother, my father's grandmother. She had this beautiful, big old car. I couldn't even remember what it is now. But it would speak to her. It was one of the first cars that would tell you your door was ajar or whatever warning. It would speak it to you. Mm-hmm. And she hated that thing. And it was this big, beautiful car. And every time she'd get out of it and it would tell her that her door was ajar, she would just cuss in Italian at that thing for 20 <laughs> minutes. And I remember sitting in the back seat of that car like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what she's saying, but she is mad. Yeah, so that was my, that was my childhood. I was listening to my Italian grandmother scream at her car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm... I guess I'm casting a little judgment here. You growing up in a German and Italian household, you probably had a pretty strict like childhood and life uh, growing up with them, right? Yeah, it was interesting, I think, because my dad worked for Halliburton on okay. the o- in the oil wells, and my mom went to college, and my dad did not. He went into the army, and then when he got back from his time in the army. He went straight into Halliburton, and he had been there forever. Um, So he started working on just driving the trucks. Then he started working on the wells. Then he started in regional sales for Halliburton and kind of worked his way up through the company. Um, But he worked a lot. And I didn't appreciate that at the time. Right. All I knew was he wasn't there, you know. Yeah. Missing my games and 
and I kind of resented that because he was working so hard. So it was really just my mom laying down the discipline and kind of making sure we were walking straight and narrow, <laughs> my sister and I. And my sister was more of a handful than I was, I think. But, um, yeah, so most of our most of our discipline came from our mother with the threat of when dad comes home, <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't violent or anything like that, but it was just, he's a, he was a serious man. Yeah. You know, so. Going to cuss you out in Italian. <laughs> he, I, yeah, he would have cussed me out. Maybe not, but he would have. He would have laid down the law, you know, yeah. when, when he said something, he meant it. Yeah. And you, you didn't really cross him very much. So, it was, yeah, but it was primarily my mom, mm-hmm. you know, nine to five and putting us to bed. And so I can, I'm now understanding where your love of food and taste for things oh, come yeah. from. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I definitely remember holidays with my my grandma, she called her Nana, and my my grandmother, that was my great-grandmother, my Nana, and my dad's mother, my grandma, they used to cook up a storm. Yeah. Yeah, and holidays were awesome. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you couldn't even get to the main course because you were eating all the appetizers and soup, and yeah, we had a really good good time when the family got together. Yeah. You have any like cherished memories of of those holidays? Like one particular one that like sticks out? Uh, I don't know about individual events, but traditions for sure. We would yeah. we would take all the black olives out of the the appetizers and you know the spreads before dinner, and the kids would put all the black olives on their fingers and <laughs> pop them off one by one until we got in trouble. And we called it BB soup, but it was like the little pasta look like little bb's and, oh yeah you know what i'm talking about Italian yeah. wedding soup is what it was but yes we would we just eat three bowls of homemade wedding soup that my grandma had made for a day and a half you know and <laughs> be sick and then we'd get in trouble for not eating the meal but every time but we got it honestly you know my my pap did the same thing so yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm kind of i'm kind of jealous of your holidays yeah <laughs> it sounds they, like it was incredible and my mom's done her best to, and she's done well to keep up those traditions for us. Yeah. You know, when my grandma passed, my mom took those recipes, and mm-hmm. she makes a point for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter to make sure that we have those dishes still. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And she that's didn't have fantastic. to do that, you know, and it, it's not her family's recipe. Right. But, yeah, she, she thought it was important to us. Yeah. We're coming up on those holidays here soon. I'm excited. So. BB soup. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, I wanna I wanna switch gears a little bit. You uh you went to school for psychology, German and philosophy, but you have a very interesting job. Yeah. That has nothing to do with those majors and minor. Yeah, on the surface I'd say you're right. Yeah. Because when I went to law school Afterwards, I knew I was going to law school pretty early. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a last-minute decision. My freshman year in college, I was pretty sure I was going to law school. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't want to be a poli-sci major. I didn't want to be a history major or an English major. Those things just didn't really appeal to me. Right. And that's that's what everybody was that was 
we didn't have a pre-law track, but everyone that planned to go to law school, that's what they were, one of those three things. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to apply to law school, I think having that diversity made me stand out to to the people reviewing. And I sat on a pre-law panel at Denison years after I graduated, and that was a question I'd always get from the students was, what do I need to be doing to prepare myself for law school? And my answer always was nothing. <laughs> you need to be engaged in what you're doing right now. Yeah. Do it well. I'm, I'm not a subscriber to be passionate about everything you do in life. I, that's, I think that's unrealistic, but do it well. And... I think that they'll see your effort on paper if you commit to what you're focused on in college. So logic in ethics was an important one in philosophy for the LSAT exam, I think. But other than that, I just wanted to do things I enjoyed. And I got decent recommendations from people that I worked closely with in college because they saw I was engaged. They saw I was interested I wasn't going through the motions just to present a piece of paper to some law school admission personnel at the end of the day. And that worked out, I think, for me. That's interesting. That's yeah. that's a unique uh, take on getting to law school because, like you said, everyone goes through like the poli-sci or you know, a related major, and yeah. you took a different direction. But if you think about mm-hmm. it, the law is so diverse. And the first year is just core curriculum in law school. You can't pick what you're going to be. And realistically, you can't even when you ultimately choose what law field you want to practice in. It doesn't work out that way very often. (laughs) You take what comes. Yeah. Uh, It's it's not as idyllic as people think. (laughs) So um, I just wanted to enjoy what I was doing every step of the way and then come what may you know I'll, I'll make the most of it yeah so. so did you go to law school at Denison as well no I went to I, I had offers at um, Pitt and Duquesne I was pretty sure I wanted to come back to Pittsburgh for law school and my wife was my girlfriend at the time in college and I asked her do you think I should go to do you want to be in Pittsburgh? Because I think I'm going to be with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not proposing or anything, but <laughs> I think I'm going to be with you. Would you rather be in Pittsburgh or Columbus? Because that'll probably decide where we should go, where I should go to law school. And we agree. We had a conversation about it, and we agreed that you know, it'd be nice to be in Pittsburgh. We enjoy Pittsburgh a lot. And Duquesne offered me a full scholarship to law school. And... That's something that's hard to pass up if there's even a small percentage that you're going to be in Pittsburgh (laughs) because they have a really great alumni network there. So we we went that route. That's awesome. And here I am in Columbus. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome that you got the the full scholarship to go to law school, like fresh out of Denison, right? Yeah, but I think that that goes back to being something different on paper, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
them seeing me as maybe a non-traditional law student. Right. So I think it it helped that I, I pursued things I was actually interested in instead of what I thought they would think I should be interested in. Right. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, they look at all of those applications and resumes and they all kind of look the same, but sure. yours looked unique. It looked weird. I yeah. can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a, a law partner who's youngest son I have a lot of respect for and he's a very free thinker Mm -hmm. very creative personality and he was upset my partner was upset because he decided he was going to go to college in London as opposed to the United States because he just thought that financing education in the United States postgraduate or you know post high school even undergraduate was just outrageous and he didn't want to be a part of that, so he wanted to go to London. And then he decided he didn't want to go to London. He wanted to take a gap year, and he traveled to Malaysia and all, all of Vietnam and all, all these crazy places from a guy's perspective in the Midwest anyway, crazy <laughs> places. Right. And he worked in restaurants, and he taught English to families, and and he was a little upset about it, you know, that he's wasting time and... And I said, Joe, he's he's doing exactly what he needs to be doing right now. And right. he's going to blow people's minds when he gets into an interview when he's ready to pursue a career path. And that's that's just kind of the way I want to raise my kids too, you know. Do what you do what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Do what you can fully commit to. Yeah. And then see what comes. Yeah, it's it's interesting cuz a lot of people, a lot of parents are and my experiences are like, you know, you got to go be a doctor, lawyer, you yeah. know, all the fancy high paying jobs. Right. And it's not always about what you want to do. I find it very interesting and unique and cool that you and I mean, sort of the the partner that you work with is kind of doing the same thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's come to terms with it and he recognizes the opportunities that he's going to have his son's going to have because of those experiences yeah and he's come to terms for sure and i think he's supportive now and he was never unsupportive right but when he was talking to me behind closed doors he was nervous you mm-hmm. know and and maybe not 100 percent on board i mean i want my kids to do well but right. i also want them to do what they feel they're called to do whatever that is right it's so interesting. So to like tie it back to law school, did you have any sort of idea when you were in law school of what you wanted to practice or did that come like later or at the end yeah. of law school after you graduated? Like, yeah. What I'm doing now, I would have never imagined me doing in college even in law school when I graduated law school I would never have considered myself to be in the position I'm in in the field I'm in so I'm a workers compensation attorney I represent injured workers 100% and my thought coming out of law school was that I was going to be a med mal defense attorney 
and so I wanted to get into healthcare policy and mental defense and represent hospitals and and doctors and do that kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, very, <laughs> I mean, almost the opposite of what yeah. I'm doing now. Um, but I just came out thinking it, it was going to be corporate-style mm-hmm. defense practice. Yeah. And, yeah, it just, it's not that I made a decision to do something different. It's that reality hit me in the face that, you know, you don't always get to choose. <laughs> Sometimes you take the opportunities that present themselves to you. You don't always create your own. Right. And so I, I started in a small practice, very small practice in Columbus that focused on, it was defense work on a real small scale. And a lot of times it was uh, Medicare, Medicaid audits and defending against Medicare, Medicaid audits. I didn't love that practice. I transitioned to um, corporate litigation defense and really didn't enjoy that practice. And then there was an opening through a friend that I had made once I came to Columbus uh, for a position in the firm I'm in now, and that was in 2008. And I took that position not knowing anything about workers' compensation not the first thing about workers' compensation, <laughs> but the the partner whose son I was just talking about yeah. interviewed me, and he was the senior most, well, he wasn't the senior most attorney at that time, uh, but he soon became the senior most attorney in the firm, and he just asked me political questions. And like. our, whole, our whole interview was about politi- like world politics, and local politics, and he didn't care what my political affiliation was or what my position on the issues was. He just wanted to know if I could communicate a position effectively. Yeah. Which was incredibly insightful in in retrospect to me now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, He said, I I can teach you workers' compensation. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about that. I just want to know if you can tell a story and communicate effectively and communicate your point to me persuasively. And if you can do that, I can teach you the law. So like this interview, was it, were you nervous, anxious? Like were you confused at the time? Yeah. Because I would be confused. Yeah. Trying to figure this out. Why you're asking me about political things. I was. Not workers comp things. So I had nothing coming into that, that interview. I left the position I was in at the firm prior. My wife and I came to Columbus with very little money. We were living in an apartment on West First Avenue in Harrison West. And I needed to get this job. Right. Because I wasn't satisfied where I was. I wanted to have this job, you know. And... I spent way too much on a tie for that interview. (laughs) Money we definitely didn't have to buy a tie that nice because I thought that was important. And I bought a brown tie because I thought that was a working man's color. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to see me as a working man's representative. I mean, all of these thoughts that I was having that are totally irrelevant (laughs) to the hiring (laughs) process, uh, that's how I was overthinking it. And then we got in there and we had that interview. 
and I walked out and I called my wife and she said, how'd it go? I said, I think it went pretty horribly, actually. <laughs> like, I, I have some relatively conservative views for a firm that represents in, injured workers. Yeah. Um, and they're very liberal-minded. And I stayed true to myself and I communicated my views. And, um, you know, I, it, it's certainly not far right or anything like that, but it's definitely more conservative than a workers' compensation attorney i would say typically is yeah and uh we disagreed on a lot of points and we bantered back and forth a good bit in a healthy you know nice way but yeah i did not expect to be called back on that <laughs> one. but he was interested you know he he said you know I, I was impressed with the way that you were able to handle some difficult questions and communicate so let's get to work Wow, that's quite the interview process. Yeah, right. uh, I, I've talked to people about interviews before, not specifically here on the podcast, but like, you know, just friends and talking about it, getting their jobs and that is honestly one of the most unique I have heard. But it's it was insightful to me. You yeah, know? I mean, definitely. That, that's the way I would want to interview people in the future, so... He's set to retire in four to five years, and when he does, if we're going to hire somebody, I'm probably going to have an interview like that with someone. Yeah. I'm not going to ask them a single question about workers' compensation or their experience. I'm not going to care if they have workers' compensation experience. It's going to be how well can you tell a story and how well can you communicate your ideas to me because at the end of the day, that's all we're doing. We're trying to convince hearing officers that our version of events and the story that we're telling leads them to the same conclusion that we've reached. And if you can do that, you're in a good spot. That's very interesting. Um, I, I appreciate the interview style. Is there... Um, what, was the, what was the main takeaway of the interview process that you go through with like your daily work life now? Yeah, it's a good question. It definitely impacted the way I saw working for him mm -hmm. and working at that firm. Um, it gave me license to ask questions because I understood from the very beginning that the most important thing to him was not how well I understood what I was working on, but how well I was willing to learn or how much I was willing to learn to uh, communicate it effectively when I was done. Yeah. So having that license to ask him a lot of questions early on gave me the confidence that I didn't have to fail first mm -hmm. and then learn. You right. know, I, I could take my time, get to know the area of the law, get to ask him very specific questions and pick his brain on how he would do things, and he was open to that process. He didn't expect me to come fully loaded. And so it helped me grow at a pace that I think was really helpful for me and my evolution as a workers' compensation attorney because I wasn't afraid to, to really pick his brain in the beginning, he didn't expect me to know. 
Yeah. And that was very clear from the beginning. That's very interesting. That's, that's quite the takeaway. So you started there, this interview was around like 08, yeah, 08. you said? Yep. So you've been there for 13-ish years now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you probably got some interesting stories. <laughs> Obviously nothing, you know, related to specifics yeah, of yeah. client can't, details. Can't but I'm very <laughs> interested that, yeah. in what what your daily life is at work and what what you do. Yeah. Cuz it's not something it's not something that I really know about, right? Like um and it's not always like it's not a highlight. It's it's kind of a more in the shadows profession yeah, in my for sure. eyes. Yeah, for sure. So it's a really specialized practice. And I say that because there aren't too many attorneys in in Ohio that are willing to understand the full breadth of the nuance to be effective workers' compensation attorneys. And the other way that we're insulated from a lot of competition is it's a volume practice. You have to dedicate the majority, if not all of your time to workers' compensation to make that practice lucrative because it's a contingent fee agreement and there isn't a whole lot of monster settlements or anything like that. You know, you see the guys on TV pointing fingers and charging at you and telling you how much they're going to get for you and I don't get paid unless you get paid. (laughs) So that's a contingent fee. That's what a contingent fee agreement is. Okay. I don't get compensated. You don't pay me hourly. I only get any kind of compensation or payment for my services if I get compensation for you or a, a settlement or some kind of award to you. Right. I take a percentage of that. So that's a contingent fee agreement. But the difference is personal injury, and those are the guys that are chasing the cameras pointing at you, they can settle for damages, including pain and suffering. And the sky's the limit, depending on how bad the injury was, what your income was, and what things were taken away from you. Workers' compensation is wage replacement. There is no pain and suffering element to it. So as wage replacement, the settlements aren't as large, the payments aren't as large, and so the attorney fees aren't as large on an individual basis. So because the payments aren't as large on an individual basis, it's that's why I say it's a volume practice. You have to have a lot of cases for it to be for it to be beneficial to you. And not too many attorneys can dabble in it and make it worth it. So you're either committed to it or you don't do it at all. Wow. That's a lot to digest very fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's a unique take on being a lawyer, in, in my opinion, because, it, yeah, a lot of the times you see the people, you know, trying to chase however much money you're going to get. Yeah. You know, you're paying them hourly, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, we don't do that. It's, um, there's, there's no obligation. And, and the other nice thing about it, one of the reasons I enjoy it so much is that's not hanging over my head. You know, if, if a client comes to me and doesn't have 
anything, but I know they got hurt at work and they're getting pushed around a little bit by a large company. Doesn't always happen, but in, in the event it does, it's nice to know that I can represent that person with zero risk to them. Right. The more work I do to get a favorable result for them doesn't mean they owe me more money, mm-hmm. you know, that they don't have. It's I, I will only receive something if I get them what they're entitled to. And so it's nice in that way. You know, I, I don't. The downside to that, though, is a lot of these people are paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And when they get hurt, they lose that. And the system isn't designed to keep them off work. It's designed to get them back to work. So they only get a fraction of what they would make if they were working on disability. And here I am taking a portion of a fraction of what they can't even afford. Wow. So that's, sometimes I wrestle with that. That's tough. Yeah. So that weighs on you a little mentally. For sure. Wow. Yeah. Um, what's Is there any um, like cases that you have had in the past that like really stand out that um, were impa- impactful yeah. to you? Yeah. The, the other part of workers' compensation is, in Ohio anyway, every single treatment request, every request for compensation can be challenged by either the employer or the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, depending on who becomes liable for that payment. And I don't get too far into the weeds, but you can have cases that last for 20, 30 years. Jeez. Because they don't want to settle the claim, because they need the treatment, and things keep getting contested. They keep challenging whether the treatment being requested is related to the injury or the condition being requested is related to the injury. So we stay very active on claims for years and years and years sometimes with no payout, you know? Yeah. Um, so we we absorb a lot in that way, and you get to become family to these clients mm-hmm. because you see them so frequently year after year, and they really do rely on you to get the treatment that they need to try to feel better. Right. So you get pretty close to your clients. Wow. I can't believe that some cases go on for... 20 to 30 years. I've had cases older than me. Wow. Yeah. And for anyone listening, you're not that old. But I'm not that young either. (laughs) I mean, I've had, I was born in 81. I'm 40 years old and I've had cases from the 70s. From the 70s? Yep. What, what, what could go on that long? Uh, Back injuries. Back injuries. Yeah, for sure. I could see that. Yeah, there's people, I, I had a claim just today I was working on one. I got a hearing coming up this week and I'm trying to think his, it's not from the seventies, but he's had multiple shoulder surgeries. It's not even a back claim. It's a shoulder claim. And he's had three surgeries under his claim and his claims from 2003. Jeez. So his claim started the year I graduated law school. Wow. No, that's not true. Year I graduated college, his year you graduated college before wow. I was a law student, his his claim was in existence. Yeah. And I have his hearing on Wednesday. 
is this like the the final oh, or yeah. is this this is just another yeah. step this is this is just a notch in in his hearings in his claims belt i mean it's yeah small potatoes compared to what he's already been through right is um what so what if you if you can disclose what what do your clients have to do like if they're making these claims how do they get by you know paying their bills is, yeah is it just like it's tough do they have to go on unemployment on, or yeah so the the tricky thing is to receive unemployment you have to be able to work you have to search for employment to okay. be eligible my clients that are on disability, if it's work-related disability, you know, they obviously can't work, so they're not qualified. They don't qualify for unemployment. Then when the disability terminates, and again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds because it gets really complicated, but they have to apply for Social Security disability sometimes to keep things going. Uh, they have to have Medicaid for insurance because they lose their insurance because they can't work. Yeah. Um, they borrow from family members. They live way below the poverty line. Jeez. Yeah. A lot of people think of, you know, I'm at, I'm at parties or some like cocktail party and people find out I'm a workers' compensation attorney. And the the question I always get is, so how many of your clients are faking it? You know, I can cause, see that. Because that's, that's the glitz, you know, that's the yeah. that's the sexy story. The guy that was getting workers' compensation that was faking an injury, and he was found out by a private investigator. Yeah, this is in, like, movies and TV shows yeah. and sometimes that's what the people news, think of. right? That's what yeah. people think of is someone on workers' compensation is obviously faking it. They could work if they wanted to, right? Yeah. That's that's less than 5% of my clients. And if I find out it's one of my clients, we have a standard letter. Your needs exceed my resources. We don't represent them if we find out that's the case. Yeah. So we don't have time for that. But, yeah, that's that's what everybody thinks of when they think of people on disability because they got hurt at work. And, you know, my reality is representing people that lost their livelihood and took pride in their work you know so it's a different perspective when you're on this side of it right right because you're you're working in it you see it you see it daily yeah for 40 plus hours a week and you know they the people asking you the questions sees it on tv or right. in a movie or maybe it makes the news yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's the it's the gotcha moment, right? Yeah, that's what people want to see. Mm -hmm. You know, the oh, I knew it, right? Well, that doesn't happen very often, <laughs> but you got to overcome that. So there was a uh, there was a workers' compensation attorney once that told me, anytime you're in a party, or anytime you're in a social event, or just among friends, and someone cracks a joke like that, make it awkward, and be real serious about how rare that is, you know? Really? And he says, because you should take pride in your work. And when they're doing those things, 
Yeah, they're making a joke of you. They're making a joke of my clients. Yeah, and your clients. I mean, you can joke about me all you want. That's fine. But don't joke about my hardworking clients that, you know, unfortunately can't continue doing what they love. Yeah. Or supporting their family because that's, you know, that's real life. So I do. I make it. I make it real awkward <laughs> when those <laughs> things come up. <laughs> I'm glad that uh, when we hung out before, I didn't <laughs> I didn't ask that question. I don't think I, I no, really did in any of the no. you know situations when we hung out before. But yeah, and it's um, harmless when they do it. You right? Know, they, you know they don't they don't mean it. They're just they're just trying to keep it light. Yeah. They don't want to they don't want to talk about the hard stuff in the party. And I I get that. Right. But. There may be like a, oh shit, I messed up moment, <laughs> but I don't think there's, yeah, anyone feeling ter- terrible, right? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And you got to keep perspective too, you know? So, I don't know. I I don't get all too, too bent out of shape about it, but, you know, I just make sure everybody knows that I love what I do. Mm-hmm. I think I'm doing the right thing most of the time, and I have a lot of respect for my clients. Right. And they deserve to be respected. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So, They're people too. Right. For sure. Um, is there any like interesting topics of cases that you can speak about? Oh, yeah. Um, this is <laughs> this one's a little a little R-rated, but I, okay. I had a client. Is that okay? <laughs> it's, yeah, that's totally it's fine. It's just you're gross, to, basically. Yeah, but, you're free uh, to speak yeah, about whatever you okay. want. There's a... Uh, one particular client who was uh, an older person and was lifting a box and suffered a, a prolapse. So, Ooh. yeah, prolapse is exposed tissue where it probably shouldn't be exposed. Yeah. And lifting, I think you could probably imagine the region I'm talking about. So, yeah. Um, she demanded that I show every hearing officer that I had a hearing with the picture of the affected region. And I refused because I didn't think it was necessary for every hearing. But my staff made sure they knew to tell me before every hearing <laughs> that it was something that she wanted, right? And right. I couldn't go against her wishes. So we had one particular hearing officer that was super nice guy, really friendly. We called him the professor, very well educated, always gave everyone a fair shake. And I had that picture. We were at a hearing and it was for a particular award for the injured worker. And we had done well at the first hearing and the employer appealed trying to get the award reduced at the second hearing. And I took the picture out, and I placed it face down on the table, because these are pretty informal hearings. We don't have rules of evidence. There's no judge sitting up high. It's just an administrative hearing. So yeah, um, pretty loose. And he said, Mr. Bucco, is that, is that what I think it is? And I said, well, if you think it's a picture of, of the allowed condition, then you'd be correct. And he said, well, I'm going to warn you, I sicken very easily. And I said, well, I'm going to suggest you affirm the prior decision. And he said, done. Get out of here. <laughs> 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 so that was, uh, that was one of the more interesting 
cases I've had, but let me think. Yeah, we, I mean, we've had, you can imagine it's, as a volume practice, you see every type of injury and you learn so much about medicine, which is interesting. Yeah. Because you're constantly reviewing medical reports. So I, I don't pretend to know anything about medicine other than what I read in these reports, but you, you almost have to familiarize yourself to make these arguments. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a, you get thrown into a medical education pretty quickly <laughs> without having one. And it seems inappropriate, but we don't have a lot of medical experts testifying at administrative hearings. So yeah, it's, it's, it's unique. Every injury is unique. Every mechanism of injury is unique. So it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like there's not very many dull moments around there. Something's always interesting. Something's always going on. Yeah. And our clients have very colorful personalities, you know. Yeah. Um, I, lo I love my clients. What's the, like, what's the range that you see of um, clients, of, like, their jobs? Yeah. It, it's changed over the years. So the yeah. the way our firm started is actually a really interesting story. So when the founder of our firm came out of law school in the 20s, he did everything, any kind of law. Whatever came in the door, he'd help you out. There was, in southeast Ohio, an organization effort in the coal mines. They were trying to unionize, and the coal mine owners sent in Pinkerton agents to shut down the unionization effort, and they didn't want them to organize. So there was a gun battle, and some Pinkerton agents were killed, and they tried some of the coal miners responsible for murder. At the time, the United Mine Workers Association was just forming, and they offered to pay for counsel to represent and defend the coal miners in that murder trial. And they hired our law firm's founder. In Southeast Ohio, in the late 20s, early 30s, you weren't going to convict a coal miner of anything because <laughs> they were all coal miners. So, <laughs> so uh, they, were, they weren't found guilty of murder. And because the United Mine Workers were so pleased with his representation, they started sending all of their workers' compensation work to our firm's founder, and workers' comp at the time was brand new in Ohio. And it was enough to sustain an entire practice. So ever since the late 20s, with that work from the mine workers and the United Mine Workers Association, we've done nothing but workers' comp since the 20s. And it went into the unions and the mines, from the mines to the railroad, to steel, um, but all of those industries have pretty much dried up. So our clientele went from factory, mine, railroad, all of those unions, now to home health, truck drivers, nurses, very few factory workers because it's so automated now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the face of our clientele has really changed. Hey, I can imagine over a hundred years it's changed, and even in the past, yeah. you know, thirteen that you've been practicing, yeah, it's probably changed quite a bit with the 
adaptation of all the technology that's come out. And the injuries have changed. Yeah. People aren't losing fingers like they used to. People aren't losing <laughs> arms like they used to. Thank goodness in the factories. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, now it's it's more, you know, disc herniations, lifting patients out of beds or, mm-hmm. you know, trying to strap down a tarp on the back of a truck and you hurt your shoulder, those types of things. Yeah. Wow. So it's really evolved. Yeah. Are you seeing any more of like, are you seeing any office job style injuries? I feel like that's probably pretty rare. Less. Yeah, less. Those are pretty insulated from workers' compensation claims. And, and you get carpal tunnel claims and things like that, but very few, honestly. Really? Yeah, that's definitely not. It's a lot of it's home health. Picking up patients, mm-hmm. you know, in nursing homes and nurses. That that's a big part of it. Like I said, truck drivers, they got pretty heavy jobs. Landscaping, yeah. Anything you can think of that that maintains a very heavy manual labor component, construction. That, that's where most of the clients come from these days. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so I want to ask you uh, another question about workers being a workers' comp lawyer is. What's something you may have already answered it, right? Uh, but what's something that people don't really realize about your job that you can add some perspective into? Hmm, that's tough. So, I know you mentioned earlier, like the at a cocktail party, yeah, all the people faking it. That's most people are not faking it. Yeah, that's one of them. Pe- people don't realize that these people that I were, a lot of my clients come from Southeast Ohio still yeah. and um, Eastern Ohio. And a lot of those people are second, third generation in whatever field they're in. And they really take pride in the work that they do. And so when they lose that ability to provide for their family doing something they love it affects them psychologically so it's not uncommon for our clients to have a physical injury that takes them out of a profession they love takes away their ability to provide for their family and then it lends itself to the manifestation of a psychological condition as well a depression a generalized anxiety disorder or things like that you know I I think the psychological impact of a major and and obviously I'm talking about the major injuries right not the ones where you're able to recover get your treatment paid for get back to work right away I'm talking about the major injuries but people don't appreciate the psychological impact that it has on on my clients it's very interesting. The the mental health aspect, it's still yeah. an, another profession where it lives kind of in the darkness. For sure. I think it's in the darkness of every profession oh, in, yeah, in, in some definitely. way or another. And, you know, it's we're starting to accept it more and more. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see psychological conditions in workers' compensation claims more readily accepted now because hearing officers... BWC claims examiners, attorneys 
are recognizing it faster. Yeah. And I think that's just a heightened level of consciousness as a society and an awareness of, of psychological disorders. Yeah. Wow. So that's playing a, a bigger factor now in 2021. Yeah. So being a psych major maybe isn't that weird anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> um, so you mentioned, um, mentioned that it it could be a little more informal than some other court cases is that is that kind of like the matter of fact of you know workers comp yeah, um, cases definitely, definitely yeah it's a, it's an informal administrative process my clients don't wear suits to hearings you know i i, I do where we wear coats and ties to represent them but you know it's it's a really informal process like i said you you present your evidence you try to give a hearing officer an accurate statement of the facts that got you here and why you think your position should be accepted. But there aren't formal briefs very often. There isn't this objection, you know, right. <laughs> you know like standing up in court or any of that. You know, all, all the TV stuff that people associate with lawyers, I don't do that stuff. Yeah. Is it is there still representation from like the other side? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Employers sometimes hire attorneys. Sometimes they have what's called a, um, a third party administrator, a TPA. You know, so they're almost always represented as long as the claim has a financial impact on them. And there comes a point where it doesn't in some cases, and then they don't pay for representation because it doesn't impact them financially anymore. But yeah, it, it, there is an adversarial process still. Okay, that's interesting. If so, if the claim would be a very, I guess, a minor claim from the company, would they even bother with representation, or would they just accept it? Yeah. So one of the one of the things I have to keep in perspective, and it's it's hard for me because I'm so immersed in. The contentious claims I forget that not all employers contest everything yeah <laughs> because those clients don't come to me I never have those people as clients they don't need an attorney they get their claim paid for they get their treatment paid for claims accepted they go back to work they don't ever cross my path um, so the, the claims that I deal with are always the contentious ones Mm -hmm. because that's why they came to me and it's hard to keep that perspective sometimes yeah yeah that there there are very good employers that treat their employees very very well <laughs> i just don't know them because <laughs> they don't come to me <laughs> yeah it's interesting i feel like there's some that'll sit down and do the math and try to figure it out oh, if yeah. it's worth paying for representation in court or if it's worth just paying yeah. out to the employee yeah yeah and i have to tell my clients that too i mean a lot of it's a lot of it's counseling my clients to say i know this feels very personal to you mm -hmm. it's not the people making these decisions in most cases are not people you know it's not your supervisor that you have a relationship with that you like their kids facebook pictures from the birthday party that's not who's making these decisions to contest your claim it's someone in a different state 
that just sees you as a comp claim. Right. And you have to separate yourself from the relationships you have at work. Because if you don't, and you try to go back to that employer, it's going to be toxic. You know, you, you have to see this as, I'm trying to get what I deserve because of this injury that happened at work. That's not my fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're just doing their job, trying to protect their company. Right. And I don't even know the person making that decision, you know. So giving that perspective to your clients is all part of it. Because in the end, you want them to go back to work. Right. You want them to have a healthy relationship with their employer when they get back. That's the ideal. Yeah. Get back to doing what you love and supporting your family yeah. and all that stuff. Wow. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to mention about um, like being a workers' comp lawyer? Or? No, I mean, I could obviously talk about it forever. I enjoy <laughs> it. I, yeah. I, I get into it, you know, and I, I feel like... I feel good about what I do, you know? Yeah. And I feel like I help people. So that's a, that's a nice way to go to bed at night. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like it is for sure one of those satisfying gigs where you can yeah. easily go to bed at night and say, I helped this person or these people today and their lives are much better. Yeah. But out of law school... I would have never had this perspective. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't the glamorous law position. It right. wasn't the glamorous attorney that I wanted to be. You know, <laughs> there's no glamour here. <laughs> it's down and dirty and, you know, it's satisfying. But, yeah, it's not It's not something you go to law school saying, this is what I'm going to do. You know? Right. We call ourselves the island of misfit attorneys. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. So what was the glamorous lawyer job that you wanted yeah i was gonna be med mal defense you know i was oh, gonna, that's right i was gonna go in there and defend these doctors and you know make sure that he could go on doing god's work healing people yeah uh, now from this side not all doctors are created equal <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true um yeah so i want to i want to switch gears here and um you you mentioned to me we've talked about it before you have a like a passion for art and the arts and yeah music industry and all that where did that stem from yeah i don't know honestly i don't know where it started but i know where it accelerated okay um, so in college I, I told you that i had a great relationship with a professor my german one of my german professors in college right and her partner was uh, actually a local Columbus artist who was also an employee at Denison at the time. And he was he's a mathematician, but also has an incredibly creative mind. And he makes really thought-provoking, analytical, beautiful artwork. And I saw his art in my... Uh, professor's home one night when we were talking about the senior research project that I had that we were working on and it blew my mind and just really sparked this visceral experience with art that I had never had before and so from that point forward I, I was constantly trying to seek out that response 
to art again, um, visual art anyway. And I had always enjoyed music. My, my sister took me to my first concert. It was Aerosmith when I was pretty young. Oh, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. So when your first, you know, live music experience is Aerosmith, you're on the right path, I think. Absolutely. So I always had that. But then, you know, my experience with the visual arts was stimulated with that experience from my professor's partner. And when we, my wife and I traveled abroad for school, I, I went to Germany and she went to England and we had a semester break she was between semesters and i went early before my semester started and we got to travel just around europe eating peanut butter and jelly with no money flying <laughs> orion air and you know taking your rail passes all over europe and we would go to art museums and you know just it was a great time to be influenced by art because we didn't have burdens in the world yet you know, right. we, we didn't have responsibilities outside of traveling and enjoying yeah. <laughs> our experiences. No roots placed and down. No, no roots, yeah, no liabilities, no yeah. no responsibilities. So that was a really cool time to be impacted by incredible art in Paris and England and Italy. And um, we really enjoyed that, so those experiences triggered I guess always seeking that visceral experience with art do you remember the artists from college do you remember who they are do you want to shout them out yeah well his name's Christian Fowler um, and um, you might know his work he has a he's the, the pieces that influenced me were um, encaustic work, wax work that he had done, and they had algorithms kind of in the background of really thought-provoking images of, you know, women in poses, and he moved on to do this crayon artwork where he casts his own crayons. He created his own color alphabet so that he could use specific colors to tell stories or wow. you know, title his work without using letters. And he, he just has this incredible mind um, to think outside the box. And yeah, the, those crayon works, if you get up real close, it just looks like the points of crayons that he's cast. Yeah. Uh, almost like a Chuck Close type style. And then whenever, okay. whenever you back up it's it's the image you know so it's pointillism essentially with hand cast crayons wow yeah and so he yeah, he he opened my mind to possibilities mm -hmm. and, and different reactions that you might have and relationships you might have with individual pieces of work so and then the other piece that really influenced me was Caspar David Friedrich has a painting called Winter Landscape Okay. And he's a, a German painter, but he painted a man kind of leaning up against a rock in a forest. And there's a, there's a cross in the forest. And in the background, there's a Gothic cathedral. And he's in the foreground 
in the forest with the cross and almost as an afterthought you have this ornate amazing gothic cathedral in the background yeah and so i had an artist in atlanta style pieces of that painting as a the inner part of my right sleeve tattoo because it it just hit me at a, a really good spot where i hadn't been going to church very often but i had a very religious upbringing okay and the church was very important to me growing up and seeing that guy pray to a cross in the foreground in the middle of nowhere with the church in the background it was kind of a i don't know it was a one of those reactions to to art that you, that you have where it just hits you at the right time in your life right yeah yeah it's so interesting for those listening everyone who's not me <laughs> basically <laughs> uh aaron has this like tattooed all up his right arm and it is actually pretty beautiful whoever your tattoo artist was is phenomenal uh they did a fantastic job making it you know as you described and actually it looks very I guess 3D as well, where a lot of tattoos you can see look more 2D, but this this has depth. Yeah. Has character. Yeah. But there's, um, was that a dove in the middle? Yeah. So this um, tattoo artist is based out of Atlanta, and I came to him with an idea for a sleeve, and all I said was, I want... I want a sleeve that you design, and I want it to be your composition, but I want it to represent the balance between strength and grace, because it's, I, I don't know, I, I try to get tattoos that remind me of ideals that I have, or maybe aspirational things for me, and finding that balance between being a bull in a china shop, which I typically am, and having grace, and being able to think first and and forgive and you know that balance is sometimes hard for me so I I wanted a composition that reminded me of that so we did the, the outside and I was really happy with that and then we came to the inner part and we just started talking about experiences like you and I just were and I told him about that painting and he said, well, pull it up. So I pulled it up, <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm going to break that down. That's that's it. We're going we're gonna to do that. And so he took elements from that painting and then created that composition. So, wow. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a master. So. Yeah. So with, uh, with the outside of the sleeve, what is there a story that goes with those, or was it more about uh, the artist yeah, it's just, putting it all together? It's representational. You know, he... The top part is a kind of ballerina in a, a little bit of a vulnerable pose. And then the bottom is a steam engine, you know, coming straight at you, like forced perspective. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a pretty literal take on strength and grace. Wow. And, uh, so he, he put that together for me. And then uh, the next session I came down, he put together the inside for me. That's awesome. Yeah. That is very cool. I I mean, I've seen your tattoos a few times, but I've never asked you about them. And it's very cool to get the stories, especially about tattoos. And I don't think 
they always need meaning, but like ninety five percent of the time, a tattoo should have meaning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I people ask about the individual images, you know, yeah. and like, well, why'd you get a train? Or why'd you get a ballerina? Is that someone you know? I was like, I have no idea who that is. That's a reference <laughs> photo. Yeah. It's just why, a picture. Yeah, why'd just you get a, a train? Was your was your grandfather an engineer? You know, yeah. I was like, nope. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's representational. You know. Yeah. So, what what about uh, what about your left arm? That one also yeah. has a sleeve on it. So, um, this is an artist out of Las Vegas, and kind of same idea. I, I didn't want to tell, um, I love art, I appreciate art, I respond mm. to art, but I am not an artist. And, right. And I, I know that about myself, so <laughs> I don't come to people that are artists and tell them what to put on a canvas, you know, I just don't think that's my place. So I came to the guy in Las Vegas on my left arm, and I said, I want this to be a balance between passion and reason and uh and he said okay you know we, we can do that so we've got socrates and the reason i'm pretty passionate about my work so we got some law books you know candle burning and then this is i this it represents my wife actually this top really? part yeah in, in a abstract way so it's a bridge that morphs into a woman's face and the bridge is kind of dilapidated like a little rickety type yeah. bridge that morphs into you know a beautiful face and and he asked me you know well, tell me about your wife a little bit and I said well she she basically holds it down you know I I'm just go 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 you know world be damned let's let's move forward and she's always got the long view and she's always kind of tempering my pace a little mm -hmm. bit and I need that for sure and so he gave me a you know a bridge that you know it's not always smooth but I've always got this anchor yeah to, to help me no matter what you know so that the top part represents my wife it's beautiful thanks yeah. I love it yeah and it's it's a departure for him he's a he's an artist artist that focuses on realism and this is a really surreal sleeve yeah it is it's one of the more surreal tattoos i've seen in my lifetime yeah yeah it did a fantastic job yeah, thanks so that was that was unique for him um to do that piece but he really enjoyed it a lot of late nights i mean i was catching flights at 1 a.m and we were tattooing at like 11 30 wow <laughs> so was... he, he would wrap me up and i would jump in an uber and fly to the airport yeah wow i was i was gonna ask how long did it take for for these sleeves to get done they're they're both black and white right there's no color to them yeah but there's a lot of intricacies about them there's a lot of depth feel there's shading there's all kinds of fun stuff going on in them <laughs> yeah i would say my right arm i went to atlanta three times for this and I did back-to-back -back sessions all three times, and we did full days. So you think about five to six hours a day yeah, and six sessions. So that gives you an idea of what I got in my right arm. And then my left arm, about the same, except he worked longer days. And one dime, I did three days in a row on my left arm. 
Wow. And I would I will never do that again. Yeah. Um, the pain is overwhelming after after the third day, but more than that, the adrenaline dump afterwards. I was sick for oh yeah two or three days because of that adrenaline dump. I feel like you would just be drained. Yeah. I. <laughs> no, I was physically sick. You know, like yeah. I felt like I had it, the flu. You know, right for a day. Wow. Yeah. Uh, was there, I feel like there might be like a, maybe like a depression that would go along with that. Maybe like with all the rush of the chemicals through your brain, was there, I didn't experience that. I mean, there was a letdown for sure because you're, you're, you're definitely a little bit manic while it's happening. Right. (laughs) So that's interesting. But the way that I would cope would be sensory overload you know, mm-hmm. so I would, um, I would listen to loud rock and roll, like heavy metal, really loud, like all day, while I was getting tattooed. Yeah. Just as a distraction technique. Wow. Yeah. So, it, it was pretty interesting, but biting T-shirts and <laughs> <laughs> all that. So whatever you know, the first question of did it hurt? It's like yeah. It hurt a absolutely. Lot. Yeah, it absolutely hurt a lot. Yeah. How is uh so back to the like physical art? Is there a piece that you've purchased that is just like your favorite piece, or you're like this is, or a piece that you've seen? Yeah. Really, you travel and go to museums as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, as far as pieces I own, I don't know that there's a piece that means so much more to me than any other but i would say as far as pieces that i've experienced that that casper david friedrich the winter landscape that's the inside of my right arm that was probably the most influential painting i've ever seen right because of it meeting me where i was at that point in my life you know, and I think that's what great art does is you read into it wherever you are at that point in your life. And at that point, I had kind of drifted from the church a good ways, I think. And I was feeling it and I was wanting to get back, but I didn't know how. And then I saw this painting that basically said to me, it doesn't matter if you're sitting in a pew, you know, yeah. I'm where you are if you seek me out. You know, and I was like, okay. So that that was a pretty powerful moment. So I would I just stared at that painting for, you know, a good half hour. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. yeah, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, that to put that in perspective, most people just wander through a museum in thirty minutes, and yeah. you're sitting at one painting for thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Not experiencing whatever else is going on, just you and that painting. I think that's the power of you know art is it's not about what you're supposed to experience it's what you do experience and right you know it, it sometimes there's just this confluence of life experience and the visual and it's perfect you know right it doesn't happen very often i don't think maybe it does for other people it doesn't happen very often for me but in that experience it did so yeah i'm very interested to ask ask more people about um their experiences with art and if it 
met them where they're at in their life. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting conversation topic. I haven't experienced that before today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a unique experience, but I imagine, you know, with the popularity, as long as you're open to it, you know, and yeah. you're not looking for it necessarily, because I'm sure you could find it if you wanted to also. But right. I think that it's perfect when you're not expecting it. Right. I, that that brings me to a uh, a topic that we discussed previously that I wanted to bring up, where you took a family trip to Hawaii. Uh, so talking on you know, my favorite subject, travel, but also my other favorite subject, art. Uh, you picked up a, a statue, right? Yeah, glass sculpture. Yep, beautiful glass sculpture, and it's um, Lino Tagliapietra's. You know world-renowned famous glass artist and he has these forms called angel tears where it's basically really intricate hot work that he sculpts and pulls a really tall I don't know if you'd call it a lip or what but and it, it forms this beautiful structure with a big round base and a big long tall um, lip for lack of a better word so it kind of looks like a teardrop. And he calls them angel's tears. Yeah, that's okay. that's that form for him. Yeah. And I always loved that form. And I thought it was pretty high art, you know, just because he's an amazing artist. And I think that's a beautiful shape. And you can put a lot of technique into it before you pull it. So we went to a glass gallery that actually my wife found. Um when we were in Hawaii and Maui and I wasn't expecting to find anything but secretly hoping I would because I like to have pieces in my house that remind me of experiences I've had with my family like vacations and things yeah and we found this we found a couple pieces by the same artist that were in that form but he twists the the pool so it's not a straight tear you know, it's kind of spiral, kind of spirals at the top. Okay. And yeah, and that's it's, it's a beautiful shape. But we had it narrowed down to two and one just had beautiful colors and it would have been a safer decor choice, I think. And my wife was drawn <laughs> to that one more yeah. um, because it it wasn't quite as intense as the other piece that I really liked. And it's got. A lot of movement in it and a lot of color and a lot of different techniques in it and my son who's 10 really enjoys glass art and he tells me that's what he wants to do when he grows up he wants to be a glass artist and oh that's really cool I think that's the coolest thing in the world so yeah we got him into a class at glass axis in Columbus and they taught them some techniques and he really enjoyed that so the artist in Hawaii was kind enough to walk my son through the gallery and talk about the different techniques and listen to my son's stories about things he had made. And and so at the end, we were trying to decide between these two pieces. And I asked my son, who has incredible perspective on so many different things? I love asking him open-ended questions and just listening to his responses. Yeah. He surprises me every time. But I asked him which piece, and he picked the one that I was hoping he wouldn't pick 
<laughs> because <laughs> because I responded more to the other one. And I said, well, are you picking that one because you like it more or are you picking it because you don't like this one? And he said, well, I'm picking it because I don't like that one. And I said, well, why don't you like that one? And he said, because it gives me anxiety. And I said, I can, I can appreciate that. It's a yeah. very energetic, emotionally charged piece, which is why I'm drawn to it, because it's thought-provoking. But I, I said, well, you know, that, that's all part of it. You know, that's, that's why I love it, is because it gives me a little anxiety, too. It's very chaotic. And um, ultimately bought that piece because I was paying for it. <laughs> but, but it's in our home, you know, and, and he's warmed up to it and my wife's warmed up to it. And they find the beauty in the chaos that I initially saw now. But yeah. it took them a little while to come around to that because they, they want tranquility in their home. Right. But it makes sense because both my wife and my son have a pretty significant anxiety. Interesting. So they're trying to surround themselves with calming yeah, things. Calmings and and I'm you a know. I'm a very confrontational, you know, personality. Yeah. I'm not I hope not in a bad way, but I don't shy away from it. And right. and so I'm drawn to, you know, the the things that make me think intense, chaotic, you know. Those are interesting thought provoking things to me. And they try to keep those things out. <laughs> <laughs> I found that I found that story when you told me just so interesting. I, I wanted to go through it again. <laughs> yeah, he he's a fascinating. I mean, he's way more interesting than I am at ten years old. I I can tell you that. I feel like your son has some very very cool hot topics to discuss, <laughs> and he will tell you all of it. Perfect. Yeah, he <laughs> let's get him in here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He would love that. Yeah. Um, what, what other sort of art pieces do you surround yourself with? I know that there's, there's this one that I feel like you really love. That's like your Facebook profile picture, your phone background. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't asked you about it before today. I, is there a story? Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah. So that, that piece is also kind of a vacation story. We went to Michigan and Saugatuck and Douglas area in Michigan on a family vacation and we had found an artist that we really liked and it was abstract. Um, he focused on abstract pieces. So we went to a gallery where a lot of his pieces were. And while we were at that gallery, there was a piece by uh, Tony Rocco, who's a pretty famous Detroit-based or Plymouth-based artist, yeah. well-known in Michigan and Detroit area. And I walked past a piece of his and it's really industrial. Um, like he uses industrial colored paints, like yeah. really bright greens and yellows, and um, really intense imagery. And I knew that wasn't going to work for our home. Um, my wife tolerates some of my crazy preferences, but that was <laughs> a step too far. And I knew that at the time. So I just kind of walked past and we, we picked an amazing piece by an artist named Michael Schaefer that we like. But anyway, that was five years ago, six years ago, probably more like five. But that image always stuck in my mind. So I was redoing my office, and I thought of him when I wanted to commission a painting 
that represented the story of our firm's history and origination. So I gave him the idea of a coal miner, like a classic from the 20s, 30s coal miner. Yeah. And I bought an old pickaxe that I sent, that I took up with me to him as a reference and gave him some reference photos. And we just talked about that and my family's history in the coal mines in Western PA. And um, just, I wanted an image that paid homage to the firm's history, but also paid homage to my dad and my family who, whereas I resented how hard they worked before because they were missing maybe moments in my life, I respect so much now because I know why they were doing it. Right. Um, paid homage to that as well. So he painted this beautiful, huge painting <laughs> of a coal miner, and it's about eight foot tall, maybe nine foot tall. That's eight to nine foot tall? Yeah. Wow. And, um, yeah, he, he custom painted it based on images that we had shared back and forth, and he, he captured a really stoic, hard-working, blue-collar. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. You know, it represents my clients. It represents my family history, and it represents the work ethic I hope I always have. You know, I don't ever want to take my clients for granted. So right. that sits in my office, and I see it every day, and I'm reminded of why I do it, you know? Yeah, I've so when I when I saw the painting, I I had no idea what it was or what it was about or, you know, your life story. I did find it very interesting that the colors in the painting are those bright greens, bright blues, bright yellows. And I'm seeing the painting as I'm describing it right now. The one thing I found so interesting about it is the the coal miner they're the color of rust if if the the pictures of it does it justice it's is the color of rust yeah, right that's right yeah i that is one of the very interesting key parts of that painting that i found that i picked out yeah no I, that it's one of the reasons i love it yeah you know it's yeah it's a fantastic painting um is there any any others that you have that there's some wild stories about it? Not so many wild stories. Um, let me think. Yeah, we, we have good relationships with some gallerists in Columbus that understand what I'm looking for. And it's not just a piece. A lot of times it's the story of the artist themselves that yeah. I buy. You know, it's important to me. So they're always, you know, trying to keep an eye out and encouraging me to look at different local artists because I want to I want to buy as many local pieces as I can from right from artists that I want to support. Um, the artist in Detroit, he was actually a Ford factory worker, and he was drawing on his breaks, and he started drawing presents for fellow co-workers, you know, as gifts to their family portraits and things that he would draw from pictures and the management of the plant the Ford plant he was working in pulled him off the line to start painting murals to boost morale for Ford the plant that he was working in wow and so those things were such a success he became kind of a safety painter for them started painting safety signs 
and now he's doing artwork for international Ford brochures. Wow. Because Ford saw that in him. Yeah. You know, so I, I bought into that story as well, you know, because I, I think that's just an incredible story. That's that's very cool. And that's why I chose him to do something to represent the blue collar yeah. worker that I value so much. And that yeah. gave me everything. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the on the topic of like artists, the arts, um, but not specifically like painting, um, you're very into music as well. What's well, you said that stemmed from Aerosmith seeing them when yeah, you were a kid. That was part of it for sure. <laughs> what uh, what is there something that draws you to music in a similar way as art or? I don't know. I think I think the heavy metal and hard rock that I listened to as a teenager was always so interesting to me because mm -hmm. I grew up in the country, pretty isolated. Yeah, I wasn't dealing with very intense interpersonal or relationship situations. You know, I mean, yeah, we were just kids in the country having a good time kind of carefree and listening to hard rock and heavy metal and listening to really emotionally charged songs was pretty powerful to me growing up I think because I was able to process emotions through music that helped me become a pretty adjusted teenager you know and student all of those things so I, I just always valued the honesty of that music some people just hear noise and it's really loud and a lot of times I hear really intense personal struggle in an honest way presented to the people that are hearing it and yeah I just related to that you know I liked I liked that so my sister and I always joke because we we give each other Christmas presents and birthday presents to music festivals. Like that's our present to each other. And then we go together yeah. and, you know, just have that time together. And we always joke that people at heavy metal festivals are some of the m most well-adjusted people <laughs> you'll ever meet in your life <laughs> because they're listening to such emotionally charged music all the time. And they're processing those emotions all the time, you know, that they're, end up being pretty well emotionally adjusted i said i think that's probably a minority opinion but we feel that way yeah i i feel the same way actually because <laughs> uh for me i also listen to the, the same style of music right uh and i'm very in tune with the lyrics that these artists are writing and i want to understand the story i want to understand the message the pain the struggle the happiness, the sadness, all of that. I want to understand as they're telling that on average three and a half minute story, right? And that just draws me to the same music for the same reasons. Yeah. And I think that the when you go to a concert like that, I don't the experience that I have is there's there's a connection, you know. And there's always a connection at a concert, right? You're all there for the same reason to see this artist that you really enjoy. I think that there's a stronger connection 
at like a, a hard rock heavy metal concert because there is pain there's struggle there's happiness there's sadness that has been experienced across the board and that board is the audience everyone else i agree i agree you won't find a nicer more willing to accept you as you are when you are there i think than a group of people at a heavy metal concert and it sounds so weird (laughs) it sounds so weird but the music's raw it's raw emotion it's not trying to prove you're one thing or another it's not trying to establish yourself as being the the richest person in the world or you know living this lifestyle that you don't actually live i mean it's it's pretty raw and raw emotion and uh, i think the people that appreciate that music are very real people absolutely absolutely and um i i don't know if you've experienced it but i have seen i have been in close proximity of mosh pits before you know right up in the front because i'm very excited to see whoever i'm seeing and people are you know running into each other and doing the whole mosh pit thing i'm not participating (laughs) Uh, but like if someone goes down or if someone like actually gets hurt, the whole crowd stops and they want to make sure that person's okay and they don't want them to get trampled or whatever. And I think that plays into, you know, how good those people are. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the rejection of Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah. Because he doesn't represent that to me. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people might feel differently, but he just doesn't convey that same "we're in this together" mm-hmm. mentality, and I think he's he's getting some backlash for that now. And what what just happened at Astro World, you know, like that Travis Scott situation, I don't see that happening. And I could be wrong, you know. Yeah. I'm sure it has happened at concerts in in Europe and the United States historically. For heavy metal concerts i'm sure it has you know yeah but my experience is the same as you just shared that right everybody's there feeling it sometimes they're really feeling it and mm-hmm. getting into it and running around and running into each other and just emotionally charged but it just flips when someone goes down yeah and they're right back up on someone's shoulders part in the crowd getting them to safety you know right it's everybody's looking out for each other, even in that scenario where no one can perceive that people care about each other, but yeah, they do. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Uh yeah, if if you haven't looked at the Travis Scott thing, look up Travis Scott Astro World twenty twenty one. It is it is a travesty. It is awful. Um, I'll absolutely call that out right now. That that's not okay. Um but yeah, I I want to switch gears again and go back to the whole travel thing because that's, that's a big part of what I talk about here. And I think it's important to talk about that culture that's experienced. What's, what is the other travel that you've experienced that, you, uh, that you've had in your life? So in college, I told you when my wife studied in England, she was at the University of Sussex 
and I went to Germany and I was at the university, basically University of Gießen, east of Frankfurt in Germany. And we got to travel together. And the way that it worked in my program was it was an exchange program. So someone from the, um, it was the Eustis Liebig University in Germany in Gießen came to Denison and I took their position at that university. But because Denison was a lot more expensive than the subsidized tuition in Germany, I got a stipend to kind of make up that difference for living expenses. And it was a decent stipend. And for someone that didn't really have a whole lot of money as a college kid, yeah. it was it was travel money. So we got Euro passes through the program and my wife, girlfriend at the time, and we got engaged in Italy actually during our travels. Beautiful. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I We got engaged at, at Denison afterwards, but I gave her my fraternity pin, which was the same thing to me because it meant yeah. something to me um, when we were in Italy. But we traveled through Scotland, England, Italy, and Germany together. And that was just a really cool experience because I... I said before, we didn't have a lot of responsibility. We were eating peanut butter and jelly, staying in hostels, and exploring just random small towns. And those are the things I remember the most, not the cities. Like, I loved Florence. I loved London. I loved Frankfurt. But the real small towns in Germany and the small towns in Italy and the small towns in England, those stood out to me more than anything because you really got to be a part of the culture off the beaten path yeah and, and so for example marburg germany somewhere you would never go if you were over there for a week we went and just walking around that town and there was a beautiful church with these huge red doors and i remember going into that church and you could light a votive candle and you know say a prayer and Walking around that town and having those experiences, those will always stick with me. Walking around Canterbury in England, not necessarily the cathedral, but just the streets, the back streets. Yeah. Cool experiences, yeah. I like traveling off the beaten path. Yeah. Those those are the most interesting experiences to me. Yeah, off the beaten path is is a very cool experience. Uh, Going to the small towns, not the... The super exciting places you always see is big recommendation <laughs> from yeah. both of us. Yeah, tchotchke shops are kind of like my kryptonite. <laughs> 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 if I see too many tchotchke shops in a, in a city, I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, where Where else have you been? What's Let's see. Uh, um, that European trip was the most significant out of the United States experience that we've had. Since we got married in 2006, we've really focused on like traveling in the United States Mm -hmm. and exploring the United States. We love Charleston and Seattle. Those were probably our two favorite cities to travel to. We spent our honeymoon in Charleston. Um, Seattle, we're still exploring things up there and love that. Santa Fe, New Mexico is such a cool spot. Because of the art, because of yeah. the culture, the food is incredible. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So, let's see. 
those are probably my favorite places I've traveled to in the United States. Chicago's a great city, but again, I, I kind of like off the beaten path. And I say Charleston and Seattle and these big cities, but it's the surrounding neighborhoods that I really enjoy. Yeah. What's a what's an off the beaten path place here in America that you really enjoyed? Let's hmm. let's dive into an experience. Yeah. Okay. So we go to this place in Western Kentucky called Providence, Kentucky, and it's southeast of Louisville. And the only reason I knew about it was there was a hunting lodge there that my dad took me to that has pheasant and quail. And we would hunt pheasant and quail there and really okay. enjoyed it. And it is nothing to write home about, that little town. But it's such a cool little town to just kind of <laughs> walk through. And I, I, I don't know why, but it's it's just Americana to me. You know, yeah. they're, still, they're still living a very peaceful, unencumbered life. Yeah. And I value that. They're happy with what they have there. Don't the, seem to want more. Yeah. You know? Local people, of course. Yeah. So so that's one cool little spot. Let's see. In we just came from a trip this past weekend to Michigan and yeah. I was telling you about um we spent a night in Ann Arbor and then we went to this place called Frankenmuth in northern Michigan. <laughs> and it is it is a touristy mecca of Christmas. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just Christmas shop after Christmas shop, and, and it's full of tourists, and my kids loved it, and I loved it for them. Um, probably not the place I want to explore a whole lot more. Yeah. Yeah, because it is so geared towards tourists. So something anti that. <laughs> it would be my favorite yeah. uh so the non-touristy places you've been what what do you like i just like getting in the mountains you yeah know, and getting in the hills uh, I, I hawking hills in our backyard is great oh yeah yeah i mean just getting on these trails and um kind of losing yourself in the woods because that's how i grew up is my mom would tell us to go outside and play and we would come back when the sun went down and right we'd just be out raising hell in the woods i mean <laughs> nerf bow and arrows chasing deer you know <laughs> <laughs> riding riding crickety old mountain bikes down gaswell roads that were all washed out and wrecking into thorn bushes and yeah that, that's how i grew up and i'm I want my kids to have a little bit of that experience because yeah. we live in the city now and it's a cool experience for them and it's different than my childhood because their friends are so close and they're constantly over with their friends and I love that, but I also love the isolation that I grew up in right? because you kind of had to make your own fun and you had to be creative. Right. You know? So I, I, I want them to have a little bit of that too. How did how did the kids enjoy going to Hawaii? It was great. Yeah. yeah. So my kids are ten, seven, and four, and we were concerned about the four year old flying right. that far because um, he's a little whirlwind, and we didn't know how he was going to do on a plane. 
I told my wife he was like a rotisserie chicken. I mean, just in that <laughs> seat, just kind of rolling over the whole way to Hawaii. <laughs> over <and> over. <laughs> but he didn't complain. He slept a decent amount. And that gave us the confidence to really travel as a family a lot farther. So I'm looking forward to pretty big family vacations in the future now that we have the confidence to travel with him. So we think Scotland's next. Scotland would be awesome. That's what we want to do. That would be so cool. Yeah, on our, our little adventure in college, we went to Edinburgh and loved it. And yeah. climbed King Arthur's seat and just loved that. So I want to get into the Highlands this time and, you know, try to find some little towns. And One of my favorite off-the-beaten-path places yeah. is Octorard, Scotland. Octorard, Scotland. We went... There's this little, it was called Powers Pub, and I'll never forget it. It's a thatched roof pub, and they had a karaoke night, and we went in, my wife and I, and it was like one of those record scratch moments mm-hmm. where everybody turns, and you're not from around here, <laughs> kind of yeah. look. And so we started drinking pints with some of the locals in Octorard and singing karaoke and just having an absolute blast you know we were clearly the only people that weren't from after art at the moment (laughs) but yeah so that's an off beaten path kind of moment we really enjoyed yeah that sounds so cool i'm very excited to hear about the the family trip to scotland that's going to be planned here soon i hope so (laughs) yeah i hope so we're we're thinking about it yeah are you gonna take uh are you gonna take the kids out to the mountains so they can get away from the city and i want to yeah. Yeah, I want to. I want to go to, I don't know, Tennessee, um, somewhere relatively local. Yeah. You know, they they enjoy Tennessee a lot, but we've only really hit up Nashville and surrounding areas. So, I want to take them to the other part of Tennessee, like what it's known for in my right. mind. You know, not the big city, country, broad way, whatever that is, <laughs> that mess. <laughs> yeah, Nashville does not seem that exciting to me. It's fun. I enjoyed it, but it's it's um it's one particular type of fun. Right. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had some friends discuss going there recently and I was like, no, nah, not for me. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I enjoyed it. I'd go back. I really enjoy the city, but I I enjoy R and R a little bit more, especially living in the city. Absolutely. You know, I, I crave that serenity Mm -hmm. you know so yeah and you get away from the hustle and bustle and there's not all the you know cars driving by or the sirens in the distance or close or you know the the rush hour and all that i'm sure there's rush hour but it's not as crazy as the city and you just get that quiet (laughs) yeah the best best thing my kids can tell me is they're bored i'll say good (laughs) <laughs> you should be bored out here. <laughs> if you want to find something to do, go find something to do. Be creative. Go play with some sticks and some rocks. That's what we did. <laughs> yeah? That's what we did. Went oh. to the emergency room multiple times due to rocks to the head. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Rock fights and whatever else we could get into. <laughs> oh, man. Any, uh, anything else you want to you wanna mention here? No. No, this no. is fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have been here for a standard amount of time. Um, so there's, there's one final question. 
is there um, any sort of like life advice or just advice in general that you want to leave with you know, your kids, grandkids, anyone else listening? What's that one piece of advice you want to li- live, have live on that Aaron said? Man, I don't want to be cliche, so <laughs> I got to think <laughs> on it. But I would say the the thing that's helped me the most professionally in my marriage as a father is meet people where they are, you know, and respect that. Yeah. Because everyone is coming to that moment with a lot of baggage. Right. That you don't understand, you know, and to assume that you do, I think doesn't give you the opportunity to learn from them as much as you could. The times that I've learned the most from people and the time that they've impacted me the most is just when I've been receptive and been willing to, to listen. So we talked about that. I, I appreciate your podcast because it's just letting people tell their story. Yeah. You know? And when you listen to people's stories as much as you don't think they have anything to offer to you, you realize they do. So meeting people where they are is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've taken that. um, I just want to mention real quick that sitting here with you here and uh, a couple of previous times, I feel that we relate even more than we did when we first met. And I think that's very cool. And I'm very glad that you came in and talked about your life and you know shared all these cool stories and experiences i really appreciate you coming out i appreciate you having me you're taking an interest in me it's it's nice (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely everyone has a cool story to share yeah thank you so much for coming out uh taking some time out of your day really appreciate it really appreciate you coming and sharing your story thank you thank you thank you for tuning in to this episode of fatal to prejudice if you or anyone you know would like to be a guest, please visit my website at CameronChats.com and fill out the contact me form. Please fill out the subject line as podcast interview and write me a small blurb on why you or someone you know should be a guest. I'll leave a link in the description for ease of access. You can support this podcast by listening to it on your favorite podcasting site. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Another way to support is by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fatal to prejudice. Patreon is the only monetary support system. If you would like to sign up and support through there, I am forever grateful for you. Again, thank you for tuning in.